Okay, welcome to the uh, Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm here in Don Sabritsky's hangar with Don Sabritsky and Jim Mungle, who is known on the forum as Seamus. We're going to talk to Jim and Don about Hawker Hines. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. And welcome, Don. Thank you. Um, Jim, we'll start off with you. Um, how, how did you get into Hawker Hines for a start? Well, it's a rather interesting story, Dave. The, um, I never knew what a hind was back when I first um, got involved with them. I'd never seen one. I never knew anything about them at all. It happened that um, Alan Rowell, the um, late um, chairman of um, Confederate Air Force, <coughs> was um, a friend of mine and of the families. I knew his father and mother very well uh, back when we were younger. And uh, he said to me, why don't I come to Motat and do some... Uh, air, air, restoration work, which I did. I started off with the late Barry Easton on the Ventura yep. and had um, worked for there for, for a while. And then uh, Alan said to me, Jim, what, would you like a project of your own? So I said, oh yeah, I suppose so. He said, we've got the Hawker Hind coming out of the Tararuas. And he said, that would be a good project for you. So I said, yeah, okay, it sounds all right. And I read a little bit about the, um, uh, the, re the recovery or the discovery of it in Wings magazine and said, oh, it sounds all right. So that was great. Anyway, when it first arrived there, I looked at it and said, my God, what have I got myself into? Because um, really the um, thing, uh, the Heim was not an aircraft, it was a pile of scrap metal. Anyway, it was too late then, so I got involved with that and started um, to learn something about it and to, um, to work on it. Uh, involved making a few tubes and things and everything was done by hand. Uh, in those days with a vice and a hammer yep. because we didn't have a machine to do it. So um, we worked, well, I worked for a while on it and um, then uh, they discovered that uh, if we got any further towards completion work or putting together that they'd have nowhere to put it. So um, they said, well, hang on, we better um, stop work on that and not do any more because we can't find a place to put it. It's going to sit outside, and that would never do. We've got aeroplanes sitting outside now, and, and uh, that's what was going to happen. So uh, they stopped work on it after that, and um, we, um, I think, uh, after a few years, about five or six years, I ended up doing nothing and leaving the project completely. So um, that's my first association with the Hind. And uh, I actually then met um, this fellow here, Don, yep. who was responsible for saying to me, why don't you do one for yourself? And I thought, oh, well, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I should. So he and I went down uh, around the country looking for bits and pieces, and um, we did um, exactly that. We got lots of bits and pieces that were available in those days, and I started off doing one for myself, which um, is the trainer version, uh, dual control. So uh, that happened, uh, I think, about 30, don't that be right, 30 years ago? How long have we known each other now? Nearly 40 years? Bit close on that, James. A bit yeah. embarrassing actually to even think about that, but yes. Yeah, it would be too, yeah. So there were still quite a lot of bits and pieces around the countryside then? Or? Definitely, and like everything, um, you don't realise at the time, and if you could wind the clock back, there was all sorts of artefacts still available that we looked at and thought, well, you could never do anything with that. Um, yeah, it's, my advice to anyone now and remotely interested in anything as you get one shot, um, it's being able to identify and do something then, because sure as hell, no matter what it is, three years later, you'll have wished you had. Yeah. 
and that was um, the way things were in those days. Right. There was stuff still lying about. I can recall the, um, uh, this is actually forming the front part of the fuselage, so my particular hind. Uh, Chaplain Russell had the Ventura on his property yeah. uh, in Appleby in Nelson. He had this um, what I call arrangement where he used to dig wells, and this front of the hind formed a. Um, he'd use the um, bearings for the um, the rudder pedals, and he'd put a drum in that and a cable, and he'd be able to and a handle. We could wind up the um, the bucket from uh, the well as it's being dug, and empty it out. And when we saw this, of course, I think we've got to have that. So he said, yeah, will you make me another one? So we made him another one. I mean, we were Don welding it up, um, and we sent it down uh, to replace the um, the one we'd taken. So that's how we got the front section of the specular hind from, from him down below. I'd love to be able to find something like that today, but I <laughs> doubt that this is probably 30, over 30 years ago now. Yeah. So um, We're not that old, are we? We must be, yes. <laughs> okay. Though I hate to admit it. The longer you know me, the younger I get. <laughs> so, what's the um, what's the most amazing recovery of of parts, or, or what would you think is the the, the strangest or, or, or best recovery that you've had? Uh, you mean in terms of hind? In terms of hind, yeah. I think Don explained that best. I think his ones were probably the one out of um, Kumiu, would it be? Okay. Well, the probably the most embarrassing aspect of hinds and uh, history and registrations are that most of the aircraft that are near and dearest to us have never ever been identified and my first input into Heinz and actually what started my whole collection where I lost control of my life to which I to this day wish I'd collected stamps life would have been so much easier absolutely I located the remains of the Hawker Hind at Havelock North that was owned by Jim Frogley Right. And as a young lad, race back to Auckland to tell the people at MOTAT, guess what, guess what we've got. Unfortunately at that stage, MOTAT, like most of the time, we were public enemy number one, and people wrote about us and about the terrible things that we were doing and the rubbish that was appearing at uh, Western Springs. Yep. And my trip back to Auckland coincided with one of these broadsides in the newspaper, yep. and I was told in no uncertain terms they were not going to accept any more junk through the front gate. And with that in mind, I sort of stood there dumbfounded, climbed back on an aeroplane and thought, I'll pick it up for myself. And that was the beginning of the collection. Right. To this day, we still not know the registration of that aircraft and would like someone to step out of the woodwork and tell me. Um, I then also through a third party was told of some bits at the Cumu area where I ended up to proceed uh, to pump out a large pond that I was told a hawker hind got thrown into. Right. Great um, exercise, but unfortunately what he didn't tell me is the last thing he threw into the pond was a large tractor. So the pond had to get pumped out, the tractor had to get pulled out, and um, significant parts of that aeroplane came out of there, uh, which was quite incredible. Woodwork and both woodwork and metal fittings, including the virtually undamaged windscreen unit complete with its mahogany blocks. Wow. Um, How long had it been in there? 
probably 20 years, that's straight off the cuff, I hadn't yeah. thought about that, but the amazing thing is, here we have number two hawker hind, no registration, and to this day, no one can tell us what hawker hind that is. Right. The rest of it is just bits and pieces off the beach at um, down in the uh, Wairarapa, oh, I'm looking for the name now, the west coast beach uh, where one crashed at Himitangi. Himitangi, yeah. Mid-air collision, mm -hmm. of which produced the remains of 1528. Um, bits and major components came from Peter Coleman and Blenheim. Yep. Um, and then the Nelson area as well, um, which I regret to this day the Nelson area one because up until recently, um, recovering some parts from a woman in Wellington, I was informed that her husband had taken a hawker hind apart just outside the um, holiday camp on the beach there at Nelson, and they must have remained there up until recent times. Okay. So um, that's the sort of a bridge version of where the hawker hinds came from. Um, if I remember at this moment. correctly, yeah. also when that hind was picked up uh, from uh, Frogley in Havelock North, I think one oleo <coughs> came with it, and sort of the bits of late, later on, I, on a trip that I made, I think on my own to uh, to Havelock North, the um, uh, we're looking for other bits and pieces and talking to um, uh, Jim Frogley, and he said, oh, the other oleo, probably, I don't know where it would be, he said, it might be in uh, all this pile of stuff, but you'd have to remove it all, and this was coming on night time, it was getting dark, and uh, he said, uh, you come back in the morning, because I wasn't able to do that, because we were leaving the following day, so I said, look, I don't mind having a look at it at night. So he said, okay, well, in you go. So he went into the shed, and there was all sorts of bits and pieces there of machinery, and uh, farm machinery mainly, and I I moved a lot of the stuff away and it took me about half an hour and gradually I saw on the underneath a bit I said wow that's the hind oleo so I shifted all the stuff away and got the other oleo out of that and yep. um, that was some years later and it was still there and um, I still don't know really what was underneath the rest of the pile of stuff <laughs> there could have been other stuff but just that was how it came about and yep. uh, we got that um, Jim Frogby was a very interesting man and most of my expeditions I could write probably small books on, yeah. uh, and the difficulties and the problems we run into, the frogly input was, every time I called to see Jim, I ended up having to drink copious quantities of some alcoholic brew that he insisted I drank. <laughs> and that was the downside of the frogly hind connection. Yeah. Uh, I'm joking really, it was actually quite amusing, but <laughs> uh, 10 minutes after the arrival, all common sense went out the window and uh, it normally ended up just a drinking session but he was a character and a nice man right. and uh, I owe him and my first trips to there he still had the Avro at that stage that was destined to go to the RNZF Museum. Right, right. And you guys have been looking into the um, the history of Heinz and the RNZF service as well haven't you? And Right, yeah, I'm doing that for quite a while. That's been a 20-year um, program, really, doing that. Um, I think it's uh, we've got it as best we can with the available evidence. As Don said, of course, the two Heinz he's got, the one that, um, that came from Kumiu, which was the one uh, that was at Hobsonville, 
uh, minus its wings, amongst the um, the Dauntless and the um, Catalinas that were due to be disposed of this is after the war. That's the one that went, and we don't know what it was. Uh, even somebody on the forum, I think Shorty put on the forum that it was a, a certain one um, number, but it's not, that isn't right, it isn't that number, it wasn't that number we know. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and also the one at um, Havelock North um, came from the Hastings ATC. And we have a photograph of a boy sitting in that aeroplane at the um, uh, RNZF exhibition, or the exhibition where the RNZF put on a show, uh, I think for war bonds and things like that. And they had this hind there, and it seemed to be whole, apart from it didn't have its wings on it, uh, on display there. Now, that one, we don't know where it... Um, where it came from either. We have a few suspicions. Uh, they've narrowed down to probably about two that we think it is, but again, we don't know um, uh, what they are, So, what, which one it really is. So that's the problem. But uh, looking back at the Heinz, the, uh, the Heinz was an aeroplane that was um, uh, obsolete in England when they, uh, when they decided to dispose of them. And I still don't know really whether they gave them to us um, the RNZEF uh, in um, response to the fact that we were supposed to provide so many pilots to the RAF for the wartime effort. Uh, you'd think they wouldn't give them to us, but anyway, that they may have been bought. Uh, whatever there was, it was fairly cheap yeah. anyway, and that 75 of them were sent to New Zealand, although only 60 arrived. The other um, 15 were sunk aboard ships um, during the war and never arrived here. So uh, we ended up with 60, and if you look at the um, the registrations, you'll see, or the serial numbers, you'll see that the 63 recorded uh, in New Zealand uh, ends at 1563 as the last of the series. Yeah. And we believe that the last three were actually built up from uh, uh, crashed hinds and uh, spares that they had uh, one of the things that seems to support that is that 63, uh, yes, I'm sure it's 63, I can't recall offhand, uh, the first flight we've got recorded of that aeroplane uh, was out of a Hakia, at the number two repair depot at Hakia, and was um, flown by, test flown by um, Frank Bethwaite, and that was um, out of a Hakia, the first one. So we think that it probably was built out of um, crash times at the number repair to repair depot Hakia and then uh, given the serial 1563 and one and two obviously were done too but whether yeah. they were done Hobsonville or Hakia we don't know but that's what we believe about them right. so um, that when, when did they first enter service though? Uh, the first one that arrived um, or the first one to be test flown was 1940 and Peter Jury flew that one uh, his actual name was um, Alan Victor Jury. He was known as uh, Peter the Pilot, the famous um, uh, porridge um, uh, <laughs> cartoon character. That's right. Um, but anyway, uh, that was on the 4th of October 1940 at Hobsonville, and that was um, 1503. And that um, one was made, although it was test flown then, it was then sent down to. Um, to Rongatai as instructional airframe number 26. So uh, it was a um, the first one, that's 1940, um, yeah, 
4th October 1940. And they gradually were introduced into service and the last ones being assembled um, in 1941, or the early part of 41, apart from the three that were the, um, re the built ones that were um, built of spears. Right. Now while Jim takes his breath there, I'd like to point out that a lot of what has been printed and we've talked about a lot of it is unsubstantiated and we are depending on and the reason Jim put pen to paper in a recent historical society magazine article was to draw any information or photographs to one prove us wrong or just supply information because the hind is a very very grey area in the RNZF aircraft and any photographs or any stories um, would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, there are certain aircraft types that were, were well known in the Air Force, but they at the time, but they've not really been recorded much since. And, or you know, there's there's very little known about them, and this is one of them, isn't it? Yes, exactly. This is right. Uh, one of the things that's um, important to remember is that there were two uh, different Heinz. There was the Hind bomber and the hind trainer and when we talk about the trainer we use this in the um the sense that uh hawkers uh had the dual the dual control model um named the trainer now in new zealand in the um service flying training school number three one was the only one that had hinds in new zealand uh if you read some of the reports and accident reports especially they'll talk about um an aircraft being a trainer uh, because it was used for training, but it would be a bomber, and and the bombers were used for training. Any aircraft that was in a training school was a trainer, but the hind trainer itself was a different aeroplane altogether. It had dual control, and instead of having a um, a rear-facing cockpit for the gunner, like the bomber did, it had a forward-facing one, and this meant that the cockpit was moved further down, and one of the uh, cross members of the um, airframe had to be taken out and moved further back and that required quite a different piece of construction to make the um, uh, the dual control model and another thing it required too was that where the throttle control for the um, uh, the bomber uh, couldn't go straight ahead through the firewall to the engine it had to go down because the Vickers gun would be in the way so it actually went down to another quadrant and then f further along uh, into the engine and through the, um, the bottom of the firewall. The actual um, trainer had a different um, method because the, um, the rear cockpit uh, rods from the throttle control went straight into the rods for the one in the, f in the um, front cockpit, which was a different one to the bomber one, and then went through the uh, middle part of the firewall. So that was quite different. There were little things that were different in it. Um, and there was no armament, of course, on the trainer. And it didn't have radio in it or anything at all. That was the major difference um, in it. And uh, also, a Grimes landing light replaced one of the wingtip flares on the um, on it. But um, you, if you ever see photographs of the hind, um, a bomber or a trainer, you will see the difference immediately because they were actually two different aeroplanes. Right. And, and how many trainers did New Zealand have as opposed <coughs> to bombers? That is one of the things that we still haven't been able to establish. Um, I've got down here. The ones that we know for certain, there's actually there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, but I think there was more than that. 
but in effect they're the only ones we can verify uh, photographically or through um, accident reports which say they were dual control. So uh, that's all we can verify, but in all probability there's maybe as much as 10 more of those could have been trainers. Right. What Jim is saying there and what we would like to know is these aircraft were wrongly labelled and to this day have confused what aeroplane was what when we talk trainer as in the two-seat different aeroplane or a trainer on squadron strength as a trainer. So any information on this along these lines uh, would help out no end. Right. Yes, it is. the um, interesting thing is that there's two books that we actually referred to when we did this history. Um, one of them was Bruce Robertson's book, British Military Aircraft Serials, 1911-1971. And the other was the Air Britain one, compiled by James Halley, which lists the, the K series and also the L series. Now, these two books uh, don't agree with one another. Uh, no question about that. I think there's... Um, uh, they, they're, there's 15 or 14 disagreements and we also don't agree with either of them because um, some of the ones that they say either, either say both of the both of them say we're actually trainers uh, we've got photographs showing them in the Army Cooperation Squadrons to be bombers and we knew that they were not um, converted as they were supposed to be now the General Aircraft Corporation or company that made the, um, the Monospar was known as Number 4 Maintenance Unit when it worked uh, for the Air Force doing um, a conversion of the uh, Hind bombers to Hind trainers. It also did a lot of um, work um, rebuilding uh, crashed aircraft and uh, overhauls. In fact, it was well known for doing Spitfires during the war. Uh, that uh, the uh, lists that they have of aircraft, Heinz going to General Aircraft, uh, exceeds the number that we have that we uh, know were trainers. So I believe that a lot of the ones that went to um, General Aircraft were not going to be converted. They went to for a maintenance overhaul and uh, and crash repair. And I think that's what they've got confused in these books. They've put down that they were actually um, converted, but they weren't. They went there for um, uh, for maintenance, as I say, or rebuild. And that's proved by the fact that the ones we know that went there were there for approximately two months. And we have illustrations of others that were there for as long as seven months, right. which was much longer than needed to be converted. So um, uh, that's why they didn't... Um, they and didn't I'm have... getting bored, and can't we talk about something more interesting? Like Heinz. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, just just on that point, and it's pretty certain that um, they they weren't converted back in New Zealand. It was no. too much of a job to yep, do that. No. Yes, so yeah, definitely too big a job. Well, how, how about the um, um, actual role of them in New Zealand? They were used as trainers, but they're also used in the uh, army cooperation. Can you talk about that? That's the only two um, record we have of two. Was the number three service flight training school, and then. Uh, the number six Army Cooperation Squadron was formed at Milson, and then that was split into two, in which the um, uh, some of the I can't I've got the number right ahead of me now uh, were sent to um, Onorahi as the number 
20 Army Cooperation Squadron, and the rest um, remained at Milson as number 21 Army Cooperation Squadron. So uh, they, they had, we had actually had three squadrons, number six, and then split into two, 21, 20 and 21. And uh, they were um, used mainly in um, cooperation with the, the Army units. Some, some actually American Army units too apparently had them used them out here too. When I say they used the services of the RNZF in this respect, Yep. But that's how they were at Honorahi and at Milsom. Uh, some people have actually said in the um, uh, past that uh, Number Twenty Two Squadron had them. Uh, that's not completely correct because Number Twenty Two Squadron had um, uh, Vincents, but they did use before they were um, sent down to Norwood. They did use the ones in Number Twenty One Squadron uh, until they were actually sent down to. To Norwood, so um. right, and also um, another part of that confusion may come from the fact that Twenty Squadron flew a number of their aircraft all the way down to Milson on a on a trip and back again, and and to Norwood, uh, and to, and to, to Norwood, Norwood yes. yes, yes, they did. They had a detached flight down there, and that's where one of the um, <coughs> one of the interesting stories comes from about um, Norwood. Um, uh, one of the guys down there did some unauthorized flying when the um, that um, the commanding officer had gone left for the weekend and uh, managed to tear the wing, some of the fabric of the wing, on a, on a tree. And he came back and begged the Buster Keevy, who was um, a well-known Auckland um, car painter, um, and he was the guy that was did the painting and fabric repairs, asked him if he'd repair it. And he said, yeah, he said he'd do it before the um, um, commander came back. But he had to draw fabric from the stores, and that was recorded, so... Um, when the commander got back, he asked why this um, hind, which had been perfectly fine on Friday, had to have um, a fabric work done on uh, before Monday. And uh, Buster Kiwi said, uh, oh, uh, rapid deterioration, sir. And, of course, he knew very well that something had been going on, which he couldn't, um, uh, he didn't know the, have evidence about it. So he said, OK, we'll put it down to rapid deterioration. And that was very rapid, obviously. <laughs> but uh, that was rather funny, that one. Absolutely. There were a lot of those uh, unofficial um, story, uh, flight stories and, and low flying and stuff associated with 20 Squadron. I've talked to a few of those guys. Um, I know there was um, there was a particular crash in the paddock that there's a few photos around of that aircraft. Yes. They uh, they were sent up to um, Kaitaira, I think it was. Kerikeri. Kerikeri, yeah. Yep. On, on, a, on a camp. And they, the mm -hmm. guys were bored, so they decided to unofficially fly home, get some beer and some gramophone records, and they didn't quite make it. Yeah. And uh, hit a fence and ended up um, in the paddock. Yes. So that, that was, uh, that, that's one where they got caught out, but I know there's a lot of low flying, yes. which was obviously part of the job anyway. Yeah. Uh, and um, and an another particular very interesting one that um, I was told by uh, Tim Murray, who was one of the observers, he said the CO was away again. And uh, I think it was Lou Gates from the, Lou Gates R from the RAF, RAF yeah. uh, decided he was going to show them how much better the RAF could <laughs> could fly the aircraft. And he, he, Tim said he was he was standing with a group of people watching this low flying, and he was distracted. He was talking to somebody, didn't realise the plane was coming straight at him, and he heard just a, just in time, and he ducked, but didn't get down on the ground like everyone else did. And the plane actually struck him on the back as he was bent over. 
and he said it broke three ribs and I thought well that's you, you you're lucky to get away with that and he said no three ribs on the aircraft oh. he said he said my back's never been the same since and they hushed that up <laughs> yes I think there's a few things hushed up um, mm. during the war there but one accident that too I um uh, was told when I interviewed a gentleman I can't remember who it was now but I should have recorded his name but he was uh, going back to Ohakia in the number three flight training school and he was getting low on petrol so he decided to land on the out in a paddock on the outskirts of the town and he walked into town and went to the local garage and asked for a, a four gallon can of petrol and the uh, garage um, owner said well, where's your give me your coupons, because it was rational in those days. He said, well, I haven't got any coupons. He said, well, no coupons, no petrols. So that's the end of that. So he said he had to commandeer the petrol in the name of the Air Force and sign all these um, papers and forms and things. And then the um, guy gave him a lift in the tow truck back to the paddock where the, where the um, hind was, and he filled the hind up with the four gallons of petrol and gave him the can back, and um, away he went back to Ahakia. <laughs> So well, that was uh, interesting. You don't get that um, very often. Um. No, no. The one little input I can put in there in terms of pilots, and I think it was Mr Moore who went on to fly in Europe, he was involved in the delivery flight of the last batch of them going to Nelson, and he'd always wondered what would happen if he put the throttle through the gate. Yeah. And decided on that particular trip it didn't matter anyhow, so he banged the throttle through the gate and the engine stopped where he then dived, got the engine restarted and wasn't interested in putting them through the gate anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, on the, the last flight that we have um, recorded with some of them, three Heinz, actually, I can tell you this one more accurate from here, but three Heinz that were going to um, Nelson to become uh, technical training um, uh for airframes, or structural airframes. I'm trying to find it here now. Oh yes, here it is. On the morning of the 26th of August, 1943, three Heinz took off from Rongatai and a loose formation flew across Cook Strait to Nelson on what was to be their final flight. Destined to be in structural airframes, NZ 1536, flown by Adrian Heyman, NZ 1563, flown by Harold Street, and NZ 1513, flown by Bob Cameron, pushed their throttles through the gate, and the extra power provided by the Rolls-Royce Kessel engine enabled them, in the words of Bob Cameron, to do the most wonderful aerobatics over Cook Strait. And they went on to, um, uh, to Nelson to land and end their flying life. But um, they decided over there that um, why not, um, they weren't going to be used again, why not push them through the gate and yeah. do it. So it was a wonderful experience for them, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, they um, they sort of came to the end of their service life in mid-war, didn't they? Sort of forty-three. Forty-three is round about the time. Yes, and some flew a little bit longer than others. There's an interesting one that uh, the in terms of instructional airframes, and Donald um, reacts for this one, is that uh, 1535, which could be the one the airplanes that Don has, we don't know yet. Uh, that was first made instructional um, 28 uh, and it was kept in sort of um, flying condition at Rongatai and I think it was used for instructing and starting and all that and they used it for painting things like that but it was kept in good order. Yeah. Now later on after that time it was um, used by um, 
the number 16 squadron at Fairhall, the P-40 squadron, because one of the chaps that we knew, um, uh, come on, Don, what's his name again? Keith MacDonald. Keith MacDonald, of course, I'm forgetting. Uh, flew it up to um, Rongatai, where he had to attend a court of inquiry uh, over, he was flying a P-40, um, together with a, uh, a more senior. Carry Getting on. tangled up with another incident there. Keith MacDonald, in those days, when you were on court-martial, you had to have a friend. And Keith MacDonald's mission on that trip was to fly the pilot's friend to the court of inquiry in Rongatai. Oh. I don't know what the incident was about. Oh, okay. That one might be the same, might be the same one then. But he flew... 1535 up to Rongatai for that particular one. Right. Uh, but he himself was involved in a, uh, uh, and this is rather a funny one too, because he was flying the um, the P-40 um, as second to this um, uh, squadron leader, and they made a mock attack on a couple of hinds, and he being behind his leader didn't see the hind, and he um, collided with it in midair, and uh, they both parachuted. The pilot of the hind and the um, and Keith McDonald both parachuted out to save their lives. Uh, and the chap that was flying the uh, the hind was Len Brown, not the Mayor of Auckland. This is a different Len Brown, yeah. but he was he was um, head of the uh, AA in Wellington for a long time. He was the one that was actually flying the, um, uh, and they never met when they even they parachuted down. They never ever met at any stage, and I was going to introduce them because I knew Len Brown was coming to Auckland, but unfortunately Keith um, died just shortly before that time. We were never able to meet at all. They met in the air by accident, <laughs> and uh, had a collision, and uh, but never met in person. Right. Now, um, just to change the subject slightly. Uh, one of your hinds was in the Air Force Museum at Wigan for a while, wasn't it? In the early formative years of uh, the New Zealand Air Force Museum, uh, John Barry came up um, doing a sort of survey of what was available, and in one of my weak moments, I uh, loaned them the hind to go on display at Wigan on a three-year loan. It was there five, uh, and then returned. Right. And it looked really quite a, an interesting display in the fact that it was the only aircraft there that wasn't restored. It was um, still in that sort of skeletal state. And I found that fascinating to, to just have a look at that, actually. Yes, they were early days for myself as well. Um, and, um, yeah, it was sort of some, in some respects embarrassing because it was just what it was. Yeah. But uh, we've moved on and uh, a lot more information has come to hand and what used to be impossible is now doable and um, yeah my only problem now is just not enough hours in the day. So that's the actual aircraft that you've been restoring to fly? Negative, Negative. no that aircraft is what it is and will only ever be a static representation. Right. And can you talk about the one that you have been restoring then? Yes, um, once again started as parts but because I didn't want to contaminate, for want of a better way to put it, the history of the aircraft we had, 
decision was made with a collection of parts that came from the Blenheim-Nelson area um, with a reasonable amount of guesstimation on it being 1517 we went about building one to spec using new materials um, and progressed on from there to a point where it's now a substantial aeroplane but we're uh, a long long way to go the problems with the Hawker Hind is the spar structure which was shared with the Hawker Hurricane if you've got the 300 foot machine weighing 1500 tons you haven't got a problem if you haven't got that machine you have and that's our problem right, right. okay and you've talked about um, the, the hind collecting the hind uh, originally was the beginning of your collection and your collection is now quite a, a very substantial and interesting collection isn't it some would say that you'd have to talk to my wife <laughs> 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 no, actually, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable life, and um, the only people I've actually felt sorry for over the years are my neighbours when they look out the kitchen window and see Donny Boy going past with the trailer load of sticks and pipes, grinning from ear to ear. <laughs> uh, we've moved on a little bit since then, but it's still exciting times, and I'd still charge the other end of the country um, to do the same, and I uh, wish I'd been a little bit better at it. 30 years ago. Yeah, I, I guess, but even so, you, you've done it, you've done better than most people have, I guess. A lot of other people weren't doing it when you were doing it, so... Not because of being smart. Um, the only thing I can hide behind and say that I did is I could see possibilities in things that a lot of people at that stage would have walked away from. Um, yeah, I've taken a few projects from Impossible and put them into the Probable Detent and I know that all of them will outlive me, and all of us, um, and I feel good about that. Well, absolutely, and one of those Impossible projects that you're currently working on is the Oxford. Can you tell us about that? I was told a hundred years ago by Charles Darby that he always hoped that somewhere in the country someone had put an Oxford away. And then one day out of the blue, someone from the Confederate Air Force Auckland division here said they had been offered the remains of an Oxford a man had in Wanganui. But it was no use to them because they weren't interested in that sort of thing uh, and they didn't think it was much anyhow. But I had a hunch because I'd been to a few Oxford sites over my years uh, that this one was in a shed. So I scuttled off down there and even at that stage looking in the shed yes this man had a power lot of oxford um, but it was just the standard windscreen engine the cell bits and pieces anyhow the upshot it is the deal was done and we started to empty the shed out and as the day went by a oxford came out of the shed in a zillion bits but quite incredibly um, probably 90 percent there the only thing missing, and this took me 10 years to find this out, critical parts like the outer spars and the outer wings were actually used in the construction of his house. Oh. So um, it took a long time for the new owner to tell us that, for obvious reasons, of it's what the house was built out of. But um, 
we were able to secure a set of spars from a farm from Windwhistle that some people on this site would probably know more about than myself but six aircraft went to the Rakaia area and in recent years uh, a project was put on eBay that a man purchased in Auckland and I was able to negotiate and got those spars right. which then simplified the reconstruction of the outboard wings. Right, and you've actually got to the point now where you've got a wing on it, haven't you? Yes, one wing on it. The other wing, I'm having to build a spar from scratch uh, off the two wings on the starboard side, and I've basically got two wings now, but there's still work to do on the port wing. Right, it looks fantastic, and it's it's amazing when you look at the photos of what it uh, what it looked like when you first got it to what it is now. Um, and I guess you never envisaged it would be like that. Well, it's like all these projects here. I always planned to do it, but when you're nine-tenths there and you look and you think, how the hell did we do that? Yeah. <laughs> and the Oxford more so than any of them. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's so significant that um, it's mostly original because there's just nothing like that around, is there? Well, in this business, the biggest problem, we all think similarly, but we all have a slightly different version of where the line in the sand should be in terms of reconstruction. So over the years in analysing and listening to other people, on day two of recovering the Oxford, we laid out what we could, and the decision was made then that this was a 60-year-old time capsule, and the idea was to put it back with the minimum amount of new materials. So I've got splice joints in the aircraft, they're not aeronautical, um, but the minimum amount of new timber blended into as much of the original as possible. And having said that, we're still probably looking at 90% original aeroplane. The sort of unfortunate part about 1332, NZ1332, is it was a boring Oxford with not a lot of equipment and was obviously used mainly for bouncing around the circuit at Wigram and nav exercise because it is the simple version and there's not much kit but what is there is fitted. I would dearly like to get a hold of a radio rack which it must have had yep. but these must have been removed by the military when they were sold off because they just clip into the aircraft. Um, I look at Mr. Reed's Anson um, and wish I was able to take it to that point. And who knows, in time to come, that may happen. But what was in the aeroplane when sold off at Woodburn all those years ago is now back to the state it was in then. Right, right. Fantastic. He was able to, and it's quite an incredible story of... And I still really can't work out what he had in mind. But most of what that man took away still existed in cartons and boxes, mostly instrumentation, um, all sorts of bits and pieces and fittings that, on looking back on it, it is incredible that it survived all those years. And when I purchased the remains off this frail little man, and I'll say cold little house in Wanganui, why the aircraft didn't get fed through the fireplaces kindling in recent years, I just don't know. But it, absolutely amazing. It, it's really the, the quintessential aircraft in the shed story, isn't it? And 
you couldn't hope for better. A firm. I mean, we always wish for this sort of thing, um, and it happened. Um, the chance of that doesn't really bear thinking about, but uh, yeah, it happened. Yeah. Another remarkable aircraft that you've got sitting in your hangar is the Vincent as well. Yes, um, an incredible aeroplane. It gets bigger by the day and um, thoroughly enjoyed grinning from ear to ear the way it has developed, the stories involved. Every one of these aircraft in my collection, there could be a book written around and the incredible way things pan out and where bits come from. And in recent years, we have had uh, people come on uh, motorcycle groups and car enthusiasts will make a trip here. In my recent find with the Vincent, we had a very grey area in the belly uh, fairing area. Yeah. This motorbike team were here, and one of the men stepped forward and said, look, I just bought a motorbike off an old Dalmatian bloke way up north. He had some of this rubbish. So leaping in my vehicle and taking my wife north for a holiday... <laughs> We called on the said gentleman, which is there's a story even in his little story, but we can't go there. But the upshot is, after he realised I wasn't there to do anything bad and he dropped the gun and I was going to live, um, he then showed me the wreckage of an aircraft that he'd gone down to the Waipapikari aerodrome and recovered during the war. Oh, right. And it was some of the critical area that we were left standing scratching our heads over. And um, he then, as he melted and become more and more talkative, uh, he helped me then load into the truck. And everything was good. Uh, one of the items that we put in the truck was the leading edge device off the one wing. Yep. And coming through the Dome Valley South, very, very late that night, a very large wetter worked its way out of the said device and crawled up my wife's leg. <laughs> there was some very, very bad language, some screaming from one side of the truck to the other on how quickly we should stop and extract the said wetter. However, we survived, the wetter survived, and uh, yeah, the next day it was all good fun again. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, and so the, um, what's the sort of prospect for the future? Um, with, with your collection, have you got any plans? I need saving, because most people that turn up have got common sense and they say, what are you doing? And there's a sort of stunned silence while I scratch my ear and say, I really don't know at the end of the day. <laughs> but I would not class myself as a hoarder because so much of the stuff that gets handed in through here, and you'd be surprised how much does on a weekly basis, yeah. It goes to people that should have it. And all I've got to do basically is pick homes um, and where things proceed on to from this point, which puts me back in this situation. I would love to have had a museum. I'd have loved to have done things differently. But on a shoestring budget and grabbing what you can and doing what you can with it, um, I'm at this situation now where, yeah, I'm still scratching my ear saying, I'm not really sure. Right. However, I have never ever got any better because normally these people are called and I'm off on another mission and another project. So yeah. um, I enjoy my life and I enjoy doing this. Um, 
what the what the overall end is, I really don't know. And another thing is, um, a lot of other people get enjoyment coming and visiting you as well. And um, last year, you very kindly hosted a forum meet for us, which we all enjoyed. Those of us who turned up, and I want to thank you again for that. It was brilliant. My pleasure, and that's what it's all about. I remember as a lad trying to go and see things and being told to clear out laddie. Anyone that's interested is more than welcome at any time to come and have a look. And, um, yeah, that's that's where we're at. And it's like-minded people. Um, that's good. And it is also surprising what wheels turn and who knows what about what and where something else is. Exactly, yeah. So uh, it's all good fun. Do you have a favourite in your collection? They all are. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Jim? Have you got a favourite? Oh, I think it must be the hind. That's the only one. Now, um, Don's a little little bit out uh, in the um, the Vincent story. Is that the Vincent uh, actually originally belonged to him? Then it came to me. It belonged to me. And then when I shifted the house, I said, Don, I can't have this anymore. So I gave it back to him. And uh, I liked uh, all the biplanes. Of course, the um, old um, old biplanes are my favourites. But I think the only one I've got left now is the hind. And again, I think you've asked me what the number is, what registration is behind. But again, you see, it's made of bits, yeah. and it hasn't really got a registration number. We've got to fit one to it, like the others. So um, I don't know what the registration is. All I know, it's going to be a trainer, and that's as much as I can tell you. Right, right. It's interesting. You've got all the original bits and no registration, whereas most rest restorations these days they've got a They've got a, a serial number, and they yeah. all the rest of the bits are new. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, the several registration we can use um, mainly um, from Nelson uh, because they were uh, most of the hinds that ended up um, without being broken up um, ended up as destructional airframes. They had a lot of hind destructional airframes, and I think that that's the most likely ones to make take one from. Um, from the Nelson instructional airframes, but uh, there's no way, as they mix up with bits and pieces from all over the place, uh, you can't put a, a definite registration on it. Right. right. I'll butt in there, uh, just as a, a sort of a story. We try to do things right, and when the first hind uh, started to develop, um, a few people became involved, and the registration was sought early in the piece and what I'm trying to say is to the people that should know yeah. and they came back with a registration for me which proved incorrect um, and I said no no that can't be because of whatever and there's actually a crash report on that aircraft and it's definitely not that aircraft right. so the next aeroplane I accepted from the people that should know was a certain registration which I was quite happy to run with and there's a knock on the door from a man from the South Island with half a hawker hind draped over his shoulder, plus bits. Yeah. With the registration of the very aeroplane I've been told that I had, which proved it wasn't. Right. So that sort of sums up how this sort of thing develops and comp it's complicated. But that's something I didn't touch on earlier. That was another aeroplane, which is 1535, bought by Mr Moffat from oh, sorry, the aerodrome. Yeah, I correct that. So you said 1535, you mean 1554? 1554, I really, really don't like Jim Mungle sometimes, <laughs> but he is right. 1554, trainer sold to a Mr Moffat, Main Road Stoke. 
The reason I know this is it's painted on the firewall, um, obviously for him to pick up from the airfield. Right. Um, so yet another aeroplane. And um, the bit that worries me is how many more of these little stories that we haven't connected with that are still out there. Yeah. But I'd still like someone to step forward and tell me where and Main Road Stoke, Mr Moffat lived and what else was still there. Absolutely. Um, just one last question before we wrap this up. There's always, uh, with collectors, there was a, sort of the one that got away. And have you got a, a, a the one that got away story? Or, or one in particular? Negative. I got the lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's it. That's the one we, we uh, the one that actually got away, as we put in the article for the Historical Society, was the one that survived till after the war at Hobsonville, the one that Don has got from the pond. That was the one. It was, um, and Don could tell you the story about the guy, how he got from Hobsonville and all that. Do you want to do that, Don? No, but what I will say, this, all these stories are not complete, but I do know there's someone out there that can tell us the story, but here is a hawker hind that survived the war contrary to the official lists of breakups and whatever else, this aircraft's photographed at Hobsonville amongst Catalinas and SBDs. Someone must know the story. Somewhere it must be written down of what aeroplane that is. Yeah. And that's what I'm hoping sooner or later someone steps out of the woodwork and says, oh yeah, that was whatever. Yeah. So yes, that is an interesting aeroplane. I'd dearly love to know it's Rego. It is unique in some respects that I can't go into here, but going by the structure, it's either a late series L series aeroplane or interesting is the only way I can describe but it is significant and I would love to know which aeroplane it was. Right. If, if anyone is out there that uh, has information for Don or for Jim, um, how should they contact you? Through the forum. Through yep. the forum. Yep. Yep. Or through me as well. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, the one thing I do regret with all this um, business is I'm nuts and bolts and I wish that I was in a situation where I could record and likewise correspond with people. It still pains me the amount of letters I've got in the mail that have remained unanswered from granddaughters telling me their father flew that particular Oxford on this particular day with all the best intentions in the world, time moves on. I wish I had someone behind me that would step forward and say, I'll look after that. Um, it is an interesting old world out there and I just wish all this could have been tied together. But I'll stick behind the nuts and bolts bit and that's my primary concern. So there you go, everyone out there, uh, Don would like a uh, volunteer to come forward and be his secretary for the collection. And um, she's has to fit certain... <laughs> Now we'll leave it at that. You have to be able to work, work a computer. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> well, thank you very much uh, indeed for sitting down and doing this um, interview today. It's been very fascinating. I'm sure that a lot of people will find it an interesting topic. And um, perhaps we'll have you on again in the future. Sounds good. No problem. Excellent. Thanks.